The Strange Tales of Virgil Kalok. The Curse of the Albion. Chapter One. There is a darkness that haunts our dreams. It inhabits the very fabric of our minds, our bodies, and our souls. And it has been our savage and melancholy companion since the beginning of the world. It lurks in the unknown and the unknowable, the dark places of the world, and the far reaches of our imaginations. We, in our modern times, may find a thousand ways to distract ourselves, Indeed, our lives proceed at an ever-increasing rate in an attempt to avoid facing the nameless, timeless fears. But they are there, nonetheless, in the shadows of our thoughts and at the periphery of our sight. They are there, and they are real. My story began over 3,000 years ago. It is a story of an ancient evil, but it is an evil which only grows stronger through the prism of time. It was 1922. The harrowing events that had taken place in Yorkshire had left me profoundly shaken, and I yearned to lose myself in the city. I made my way to London and found some basic accommodation in Holborn. I knew no one. I was utterly alone and very much in need of a job. My father once more made inquiries on my behalf, and I was able to secure employment at the British Museum. I was to be an acquisitions assistant, which is the term given for a porter who is permitted to wear a suit. I sorted objects and delivered them to the correct departments, and I would on occasion be sent to collect exhibits from patrons around the country. It was a modest appointment. So I was surprised and excited to find myself at the behest of the British Museum in the port city of Hagada in Egypt. There had been a major archaeological find. A dig had revealed the 3,000-year-old tomb of King Tepi III in the Valley of the Kings. To discover the hidden resting place of this great pharaoh was incredible. To find it intact and as complete as when it was first sealed, a miracle. I had been sent to accompany the many artefacts by boat from Egypt to the British Museum, not as an archaeologist, but as a bookkeeper. I was to count the packed goods onto the boat and see them arrive in good order at the museum. A simple enough task, one would have thought. And so, there I stood, in the burning Egyptian sun, aboard the Albion, a steel-hulled frigate of 2,049 tons, loading the treasures of the biggest archaeological discovery in a generation. Gently does it! 
That's right. Gently. Gently, Bill Raha. The local porters toiled for a day and a half to carry an enormous number of crates and packages onto the ship. As it was my responsibility to see that it all arrived safely in London, I logged each and every item and ensured that they had been meticulously packed with plenty of cotton wadding for the trials of a long journey. That's right, keep it coming. The prospect of the remains of King Tepe and his 3,000-year-old effects turning up at the British Museum in any way damaged kept me permanently on edge. More than once, I had woken sweating from a nightmare of opening the crates to much fanfare, only to find them full of broken sticks and dust. Mr. McNeish, how is it going below? It's packing well and sturdy, Mr. Kalok, sir. It's all under control, if we can keep it dry. No, and yes, yes, please, if you could. I'm ribbing you, Mr. Kalok. It'll be dry enough, sir. It's quite safe. As much as anything can be on a sea voyage, we will do our best. Ah, yes. Yes, of course. Thank you, Mr. McNeish. Though truth be told, I'd rather not sail with this shipment. We ship cotton. That's what we do, Mr. Kalock. Cotton, not bones. Do you know, Mr. McNeish, this is probably the most precious cargo to cross the Mediterranean in thousands of years. We are honoured to have as a cargo the most important archaeological find of the century. I've been told the same thing by Mr. Pinero, again and again. He told me that I would personally pay for any damages. Well, I should say that he's wrong and that you will pay for nothing at all, and that we are all extremely grateful for your careful work. All the same, I'd rather not be sailing with this cargo. But why? There's really nothing to worry about, you know. I believe you, Mr. Keylock. But most of the men won't touch it. They've left it to the locals. Now, Mr. McNeish, there's It's really... cursed! Or am I wrong? Well, I suppose... Um, as I understand it, it's a standard funerary command, that's all. Pretty much every burial site has one. You should take no notice. My men are seafarers, Mr. Keylock. They prefer not to take unnecessary risks. Cautious. Superstitious. Best not curse them, not even with a standard curse. Let's just get it safely to the British Museum with as little fuss as possible, shall we? If you wanted to avoid fuss, you're out of luck, Mr. Keylock. Here it comes. Uh, if you'll excuse me, sir. Along the dockside and onto the ship came Lady Tregaskis, the patron of the expedition. Tall and full of an energy and enthusiasm that emanates from those used to delegating tasks to others, she was accompanied by a younger woman, smaller, slighter, and dark-haired, who almost ran to keep up with her. Kaylock! Mr. Kaylock! He's on his way. Last but not least, the great man himself. Lady Tregaskis? I can't wait to meet him. I've always wanted to meet a king. At 3,000 years old, I would say he's a little old for you, don't you think? <laughs> not at all. Now, this is Virgil Kaylock from the British Museum. Really? Nothing exciting, I'm afraid. I just count the crates. Uh oh. Yes, and this is Dorothy Bell. She had an intelligent face with a direct and steady gaze, which felt both flattering and alarming. How do you do? She's from the Illustrated London News. She's writing all about our successful encounter with King Tepe. Please give her all the copy she needs. We want lots of Middle Kingdom gossip for the paper. Anything scandalous will do. Let's get everyone at home Pharaoh-mad! Yes, please. Juicier the better. And if you don't, I'll simply make it up. I'm afraid I really don't know much about it. Then you must make it up too. 
I should say Mr. Penhallow is best for history. <laughs> well, we're doing our best with James. He is an absolute genius, of course. Very excitable, very enthusiastic, very knowledgeable, and very boring. He's rather intense, isn't he? Intense? My goodness, he's been scaring the porters. Running around, swearing and shouting, he really must calm himself. I sent him off to cool down. Now, I want Dorothy to see the arrival of the sarcophagus. It's the best bit, after all. It's the only thing anyone really wants to see. Oh, thank you. I'd love to see. Yes, and we'll give him a good show when we arrive home. We want a good crowd to meet us at Southampton. And I'm rather hoping for a riot in London. Pharaoh Fever. <laughs> oh, good. I have a title. <laughs> well, marvellous. We want to make the most of our ancient guest before we have to hand him back to the Cairo Museum in five years' time. Actually, I don't see why I should hand him back at all. After all the trouble I've been through to dig him up. And here he comes. A large wooden crate was being carried up onto the ship. A procession of sailors and porters headed by Mr. Tarek Gamal from the Museum of Antiquities in Cairo. Welcome aboard, King Tepe. And Mr. Gamal, you're welcome too, of course. That's him, in there. Well, I certainly hope so. It'd be awful if he had escaped. <laughs> I must take some notes, excuse me. The crate contains the sarcophagus, Miss Bell, the ornate coffin and the mummified remains of the pharaoh. Incredible. It does look heavy. Welcome aboard, Mr. Gamal. It's terribly exciting. Actually, don't tell Mr. Gamal, but I think I will keep him after all. Is it all right? Now that's precisely what we're not supposed to do. My lord, if it's damaged, I... Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, no, no, he's... Yes, he's, he's waving. It's fine. Thank God. Oh, my goodness. I felt quite faint for a minute. Don't let Penhallow hear of it. We'll all pay dearly. No harm done, I think. It is well packed. Well, I hope it's well packed. Is everything all right? Good. The sailors are helping. Oh. Finally. Seems they've overcome their squeamishness. Hurrah! Well caught. All's well, well said. Safely on board. Right, let's leave them to it. Come on. We'll all settle in for our adventure at sea. We're sailing in about an hour. Exciting. So tonight, a party. On the deck at eight. You'll be there, won't you, Mr. Kaylock? Yes. Right. Absolutely. So we'll find your cabin, Dorothy, shall we? Oh, yes. I hope to see you later, Mr. Kaylock. Um, yes. Hope so. I waited to see the box safely stowed in the hold of the ship. Though indistinguishable from many other packing crates, it was kept apart and given pride of place in its own small storeroom. For some reason, I didn't leave with the porters. I stayed with it in the dark. I suppose I felt the need to pay my respect. It was a coffin after all. It contained the mortal remains of a human being one who had lived and breathed 3,000 years ago. I sat in the candlelight, and in the stillness I, what, prayed? To whom? To our God or to his? To the Redeemer of sins and Prince of the Resurrection? Or to Osiris, the God of death and Lord of the underworld? And then, while I crouched there musing, the door slowly opened, and the archaeologist James Penhallow came into the room. For some odd reason I didn't make my presence known, I remained quite still, watching from the shadows. Penhallow moved slowly. He approached the crate 
and ran his hands along the box. He seemed to be mumbling something. I felt embarrassed, but somehow it was too late to reveal my presence. In the gloom, I watched as he knelt down beside the crate. Out of respect? Or was it supplication? And from his mouth came the strangest words I had ever heard. He was speaking to the old king in his own language. <laughs> Look here, I'm so sorry. I should have coughed ages ago. What the hell are you up to? I really didn't mean to startle you. I do apologise. I was just sitting here quietly when you came in. I imagine we were both paying our respects. The only difference being you knew exactly what to say. How dare you spy on me? No, really, I, I wasn't. Look, I can only apologise, and I would rather ask you for forgiveness than point out that, actually, I was here first. What were you speaking just then? Was it ancient Egyptian? It was. Extraordinary. Why extraordinary? I am an Egyptologist. May I ask what it meant? No. I was asking for forgiveness. Really? What for? For the debacle of this journey, for the stealing of his goods, for pulling him from his grave. They dropped him, did you see? Yes. Yes, I did. Unfortunate. It was more than unfortunate. But no harm done, I think. Do you? How would you know? Sorry? All men, however lowly, deserve respect. If not in life, then most certainly in death. How much more respect than for a king and one who had transcended mere humanity to become a living god? Indeed. Quite. Well, I'm sure that you, like Lady Tregascus, would rather not concern yourself with all that, hmm? Why would you allow an old and forgotten religion to spoil a good party? Am I right? I think Lady Tregascus really only wants to celebrate your great discovery. What's wrong with that? You've done a fine job, by all accounts. Oh, yes, a fine job. I have done a fine job. We can all congratulate ourselves. Well done, everyone. Job done. Look here, I think I'll take a rest in my cabin. I apologise again for startling you. I will see you on deck. Yes. No doubt. Right. It was a relief to remove myself from that small, dark room and breathe the fresh air on deck. The Albion was already under sail and passing through the arms of the harbour, leaving the lively port behind, and I was content to be headed home. From my cabin window, I watched as we hugged the parched Egyptian coastline before heading out into the Mediterranean Sea. In a short while, I dressed and joined the party on deck. <laughs> and if I am to lose such an enormous sum of money, I would rather it was enjoyed by absolutely everyone, the man in the street, than by a few dry old bankers in Switzerland. Quite right, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Mr. Kalo. Join us, we have champagne. Do we have a glass for Mr. Kalo? Uh, yes. Yes, yes. Now, Dorothy, you know, and Mr. Gamal, 
And our captain, Captain Hendrick. How do you do? Well, thank you. Welcome aboard, Mr. Kalok. You must excuse the champagne. No ice. It's a bit warm. Oh. Warm? <laughs> but in truth, it's positively hot. <laughs> Actually, it's more like a beverage than a sparkling wine. But it is a celebration, and it's symbolic of our success. So you have to drink it. A top-up for you, Captain. Ah, thank you. And for you, Mr. Gamar. For me, no, but thank you. A toast. Yes. Ah. To the patron of the expedition, Lady Tregaskis. Oh, yes. Thank you. So kind. And I would like to make a toast to Mr. Tarek Gamal and the Cairo Museum, without whose help and cooperation there would be no expedition. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shukran, shukran, thank you. And I would have saved a fortune. <laughs> but Lady Tregaskis, money is of no consequence with a find such as this, no? You are absolutely right, Mr. Gamal, and you must forgive me for my vulgarity. The experience itself is priceless, and we're so grateful that you've allowed us to take him home and show him off. We may have to give him back, but at least we can have a proper royal party until then. A party, yes, but no breakages, please. Oh, no. <laughs> Actually, there are many who would rather the discovery had never left these shores. It has not been easy to get the permission. And we are extremely grateful to you, Mr. Gamal, but don't you worry. He will be safe with us, safe as houses. Well, houses at sea. <laughs> Indeed, it's not a difficult voyage, quite safe. Uh, and we stop at Malta, Gibraltar and Lisbon. Not bad at all. It's a cruise. Oh, oops, that's a bit crass, sorry. It's a funeral procession. No, no, it's a cruise. I think the pharaoh is probably bored after 3,000 years of doing absolutely nothing and deserves a relaxing cruise to a foreign land for a holiday. I should think that immortality is a pretty taxing business. So, tell us. What was it like? The discovery? How did it happen? Well, short version. Notebook at the ready? Good. Fortunately, I was still in Cairo when I got the telegram. It simply said, a miracle, come quickly. So of course I was there at like a shot. Penhallow had been right the whole time. The tomb was in the most unlikely corner of the valley, under the rubble, left by the ransacking of another tomb, and then under another 20 feet of sand beneath that. When I arrived, Penhallow had already squeezed through a tiny gap into the tomb. Everyone was standing around, staring at this hole. We just stood in the hot sun without breathing for what seemed like hours. And then, then, he emerged, covered in dust and as pale as a sheet. Lady Tregaskis, he said. There is a heaven on earth, and I have seen it. How wonderful. He really is a genius, you know. Oh, where is Mr. Penhallow? Do you know, I really couldn't say. Captain. Uh, he was here earlier. I don't know. Well, we should be toasting him, too, shouldn't we? After all, he was the one responsible for finding it all. Well, of course we should. James Penhallow! Wherever you are. James Penhallow. <laughs> I am so looking forward to seeing it all in London. I've seen an awful lot of crates, but as yet, not a single jewel. Ah, one moment, please. If you would take my stick, Mr. Kalok. Yes, of course. With a showman's flourish, Mr. Gamal took from his pocket a parcel of brown paper and carefully unwrapped it. <gasps> oh, what, a, what is it, my goodness? Now that's exquisite. Oh. There it is, the gold and jade amulet of King Tepi the Third. It's absolutely beautiful. 
beautiful, isn't it? It's incredible. It's 3,000 years old. Look, there's his cartouche. Let me see. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like an owl. Is that it? Standing on something. On water. It's priceless, I suppose. Priceless, yes. Timeless. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Perhaps you would like to wear it, Miss Bell. Oh, yes. Y- yes, I would. May I? <laughs> oh. ah, it fits. <laughs> it suits you, Dorothy. Oh, look how the light makes it glow. It has not seen sunlight for a long time. And it has not been worn for 3,000 years. Incredible. That is not quite true, Captain. In fact, it has been worn continuously for 3,000 years. Good Lord. Yes. It was taken from the mummy's arm. Oh. Well, I feel funny about it now. I don't think I should be wearing it. Someone else have it. Don't give it to me. I don't want to. <laughs> Virgil, you wear it. No, no, thank you. <laughs> it is not a toy. It's not some bauble to be handed around at a party. James, there you are. Clumsy fools. Now look here. I am most awfully sorry. It should not have been separated from the body. Who took it? Who took it? I did, Mr. Penhallow. But you mustn't worry. It is quite safe. It is under my protection. All the same. I suggest that you do not interfere with the artifacts. Any of them. It's a bit late for that. The whole grave and everything in it has been interfered with. The whole kit and caboodle. If you are worried by the curse, I should say you're already in it. It's up to your neck. Is that why you are drunk? It should not have been taken from the body. James, you are absolutely right. Of course you are, and we're all very sorry. Look, Mr. Gamal will keep it safe until we get to London. Will you accept my apology? All my fault, and now it's over. What do you say? You know, we were wondering where you were. We toasted you. Actually, we wanted to pick your brains. This is Dorothy Bell from the Illustrated London News, and she needs lots of stories for the paper. Do tell her about the honey. The honey? Yes, the honey, you know. It's a wonderful story. Please, Jane. Yes, please. I'd really love to know everything there is to know about King Teppy, but you could start with the honey. Please, please, James. No? Well, perhaps you will allow me to tell it, yes? Now, the story goes that the pharaoh took a dislike to being followed by the flies in the palace, you see. The flies, as we know, are absolutely frightful here. I'll say. (laughs) He didn't know what to do and asked all his advisers and so on. None of them could come up with anything at all. They were all at sea. And then suddenly it came to him, an idea. He'd thought of an ingenious way of getting rid of them. He covered all his servants in honey. No. (laughs) Yes, yes. So wherever he walked... The flies would go to them and leave him in peace. No. <laughs> Wasn't that genius? Oh, my goodness. Is that true? Well, I suppose it's very clever. Walking flypaper. <laughs> That's so funny. We could do with a honey servant right now. Any volunteers? <laughs> Kaylock? <laughs> no, thank you. And did you find any honeyed servants on the dig to keep the flies off him in the afterlife? Actually, we found his entire household. Servants, cooks, workers, men, women, children... In pits, a few feet from the tomb. They had all been slaughtered. Truly? Why? They were his possessions in life, and he needed them in death. In the next life, 
They'd all been hit on the head with a sharp but heavy object, probably a ritual hammer made for such a purpose. There was no sign of a struggle. They probably meekly lined up for it, like waiting in a queue at a railway station, waiting to journey onto the fields of death. Good Lord. Two hundred and twenty bodies or so. Which is actually nothing compared to the pits containing over six hundred slaves. And the thousands more killed during his lifetime. I'm afraid the pharaoh might not be the amusing character you supposed him to be. Will you be writing that in your paper, Miss Bell? Yes, I will. Thank you. And any more stories should be welcome. Our readers are serious people, Mr. Penhallow. They want to know the truth. (laughs) Do they, indeed? Well, let's start with the curse. We all know about it. There's an exciting story right there. Perhaps not on board. The sailors are... Nonsense, nonsense. We should talk about it. Get it into the open, the light of day. Destroy its power. It's the secrecy and fear of things that make them scary. I'm so right. Don't you think, Virgil? I'm sure you're not a superstitious young man. I'm sure I am not qualified to give an opinion, Lady Jagaskis. Perhaps Mr. Penhallow will give us his view. What on earth? Is that it? What does it mean? It means, beware. To disturb my body is to disturb the gods. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. You don't think? Not at all. We don't believe in his gods. I think this is a conversation we should avoid. Quite right, Mr. Gamal. No talk of curses on board. You know, of course, that it will probably be the main story in all the papers, don't you? All the same. And you certainly won't be able to escape from it in London. Everybody loves a mystery. Captain? Mr. McNish? You should come, Captain. Oh, why? An accident, sir. One of the men. You should come. Yes, right away. Uh, if you'll all excuse me. Oh, dear. What could have happened? Nothing serious, I hope. Well, we won't know by standing here. Come on. We all trooped after the captain to the back of the ship. The sailors were gathered around something on the deck. As we approached, they eyed us with suspicion. But they parted to allow us through. What is it? Is someone hurt? <gasps> oh. oh, my goodness. The captain turned to us. His face ashen. Good God. Do you have a doctor? No. No, we don't. And in any case, that won't be necessary. He's dead. In Chapter 1 of The Curse of the Albion, written by John Ram, Virgil Kalock was played by Nicholas Bolton, Young Kalock, Daniel Fraser, Lady Tregaskis, Abigail Thor, Robert McNeish, David Fielder, Dorothy Bell, Ellie Turner, James Penhallow, Matthew Pigeon, and Tarek Gamal, Montgomery Wigglesworth. The music was composed by Neil Brand. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kalock are supported by the Arts Council Lottery Fund and produced by Richard Varman, Martin Malone and John Ram. It is a Kalock production.